The Luck of Roaring Camp, Part 4 And so, the work of regeneration began in Roaring Camp. Almost imperceptibly, a change came over the settlement. The cabin assigned to Tommy Luck, or The Luck, as he was frequently called, first showed signs of improvement. It was kept scrupulously clean and whitewashed. Then it was boarded, clothed, and papered. The rosewood cradle, packed 80 miles by mule, had, in Stumpy's way of putting it, sorter killed the rest of the furniture. So the rehabilitation of the cabin became a necessity. The men who were in the habit of lounging in at Stumpy's to see how the luck got on seemed to appreciate the change, and in self-defense, the rival establishment of Toodle's Grocery bestirred itself and imported a carpet and mirrors. The reflections of the latter on the appearance of Roaring Camp tended to produce stricter habits of personal cleanliness. Again, Stumpy imposed a kind of quarantine upon those who aspired to the honor and privilege of holding the luck. It was a cruel mortification to Kentucky, who, in the carelessness of a large nature and the habits of frontier life, had begun to regard all garments as a second cuticle, which, like a snake's, only sloughed off through decay to be debarred this privilege from certain prudential reasons. Yet, such was the subtle influence of innovation that he thereafter appeared regularly every afternoon in a clean shirt and face still shining from his ablutions. Nor were moral and societal sanitary laws neglected. Tommy, who was supposed to spend his whole existence in a persistent attempt to repose, must not be disturbed by noise. The shouting and yelling which had gained the camp its infelicitous title were not permitted within hearing distance of Stumpy's. The men conversed in whispers or smoked with Indian gravity. Profanity was tacitly given up in these sacred precincts, and throughout the camp, a popular form of expletive known as Dan the Luck and Curse the Luck was abandoned, as having a new personal bearing. Vocal music was not interdicted, being supposed to have a soothing, tranquilizing quality, and one song sung by Man o' War, Jack, an English sailor from Her Majesty's Australian colonies, was quite popular as a lullaby. It was a lugubrious recital of the exploits of Aratusa 74 in a muffled minor, ending with a prolonged dying fall at the burden of each verse. On board of the Aratusa. It was a fine sight to see Jack holding the luck, rocking from side to side as if with the motion of a ship, and crooning forth this naval ditty, either through the peculiar rocking of Jack or the length of this song. It contained ninety stanzas and was continued with conscientious deliberation to the bitter end. The lullaby generally had the desired effect 
At such times, the men would lie at full length under the trees in the soft summer twilight, smoking their pipes and drinking in the melodious utterances. An indistinct idea that was pastoral happiness pervaded the camp. This air kind of think, said the Cockney Simmons, meditatively reclining on his elbow, is evenly. It reminded him of Greenwich. On the long summer days, the luck was usually carried to the gulch from whence the golden store of Roaring Camp was taken. There, on a blanket spread over pine boughs, he would lie while the men were working in the ditches below. Laterly, there was a rude attempt to decorate this bower with flowers and sweet-smelling shrubs, and generally someone would bring him a cluster of wild honeysuckles, azaleas, or painted blossoms of las mariposas. The men had suddenly awakened to the fact that there were beauty and significance in these trifles, which they had so long trodden carelessly beneath their feet. A flake of glittering mica, a fragment of variegated quartz, a bright pebble from the bed of the creek, became beautiful to the eyes, thus cleared and strengthened, and were invariably pat aside for luck. It was wonderful how many treasures the woods and hillsides yielded that would do for Tommy. Surrounded by playthings such as never a child out of fairyland had before, it is to he hoped that Tommy was content. He appeared to be serenely happy, albeit there was an infantine gravity about him, a contemplative light in his round gray eyes that sometimes worried Stumpy. He was always tractable and quiet, and it is recorded that once, having crept beyond his corral, a hedge of tessellated pine boughs, which surrounded his bed, he dropped over the bank on his head in the soft earth, and remained with his mottled legs in the air in that position for at least five minutes with unflinching gravity. He was extricated without a murmur. I hesitated to record the many other incidences of sagacity which rests, unfortunately, upon the statements of prejudiced friends. Some of them were not without a tinge of superstition. I crept up the bank just now, said Kentuck, one day in a breathless state of excitement, and darn my skin if he was talking to a jaybird as was sitting on his lap. There they was, just as free and sociable as anything you please, a-jawing at each other, like two cherubims. How be it, whether creeping over the pine boughs or lying lazily on his back, blinking at the leaves above him, to him the birds sang, the squirrels chattered, and the flowers bloomed. Nature was his nurse and playfellow. For him, she would let slip between the leaves golden shafts of sunlight that fell just within his grasp. She would send wandering breezes to visit him with the balm of bay and resinous gum. To him, the tall redwoods nodded familiarly and sleepily. The bumblebees buzzed, and the rocks cawed a slumberous accompaniment.